Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned after the podcast for insights on elevating the human experience. Welcome to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. I'm your co-host, Co-M, but we are sadly without David Greiner today. He'll be back soon. Challenger Brands, The Summit, in New York on March 4th and 5th with the Adweek team as well as 700 or 800 or so marketers, key leaders in our industry, our retail reporter, Anne-Marie Alcantara, and our CPG reporter, Paul Hebert, are both in the podcast room with us today. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Hi. This is a good good time. Also, everyone's Paul's first time on the podcast. Yes, it is. I'm uh, ready. <laughs> are we ready for... Challenger Brands and Marie. I know it's been a lot of work and planning. Some of these speakers have been in conversations with us since last fall. It's a big deal. I'm ready. The road to Brand Week never stops, doesn't yeah. ever, just many twists and turns, and Challenger Brands is just one of them. And beyond DJ Khaled, uh, who are the big speakers and kind of the, the keynotes that we're looking ahead at? I'm looking forward to hearing Ulta Beauty get on stage because I think you know, Sephora has has dominated that conversation in terms of beauty and how well they're doing in retail, but Ulta is also doing pretty well. So I, I want to hear what the CMO has to say, especially in the context of Adweek versus like a different kind of industry event. Yeah, we have everyone from platforms, various tracks such as Gen Z. Um, will there be somebody at, from our team at each room um, covering the various tracks and topics? How's the setup as you've been at the helm of kind of planning our coverage? Yeah, we're going to have reporters in every room uh, ready to report (laughs) on anything (laughs) that uh, comes out of these panels. Uh, Sometimes a little news slips up from the speakers or just an interesting trend that you hear from them that you wouldn't otherwise hear or understand if if the founders and the VPs themselves weren't saying it and, and seeing it themselves. Yeah. So a lot of mingling and big conversations. Um, 
while folks are there, they can also pick up the new issue of Brand Week. Um, and Anne-Marie, you also wrote um, a lot about DTC brands, or as you put it, kind of this next wave of those brands, DTC 3.0. What do you mean by that? And maybe we start kind of at the beginning, like a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Uh I mean, yeah, direct-to-consumer brands, We, when we say that, we think of Warby Parker, Everlane, Glossier, um, which has then evolved to other brands like Allbirds, Burrow, um, and a few other ones like Outdoor Voices um, that have really dominated this industry where it used to be something where you, you just cut out the middleman, you know, and that was like their big thing and that they were e-commerce and digital first and... Um, attracting millennials, and eventually now we're, they're talking about attracting Gen Z. But this next wave um, that I, I write about in my piece um, are still these direct-to-consumer brands that are digital first, but that's not all what they're all about, you know? <laughs> like digital first should be a mindset for any company these days, and mm. so that's not necessarily something that stands out for these brands anymore. And instead they're focusing on sustainability or building community and kind of using those channels as a way to acquire customers as opposed to only reaching people through social media or only opening up brick and mortar. I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the headlines and it's like neither of those things are the only way to get customers. You have to do a mix of both and also do it more authentically and you know, community is one of, one of those ways that these brands are doing it. Yeah, that one way to really keep the customers and then, um, you know, sustainability, it, you know, it's something that is in a lot, is top of mind for a lot of brands um, because the millennial and the Gen Z audiences are looking for that brand value alignment. Is that right? Yeah. And I would even say that sustainability is an easy term that brands are becoming better at throwing out there and being like, oh, we do this and we do this and, uh, you know, we have a recycled shoe or something like that. But I think part of the next crop of D2C brands we're seeing that incorporates sustainability are taking it a step further. Um, like I will be speaking on stage with Buffy at Challenger Brands and they are, I mean, they use recycled plastic and try to source the materials in a sustainable way. But they also bring the customer in that journey where in your account, if you purchase anything with them, they show you like how many bottles you've helped recycle and your actual impact as opposed to just, you know, the company patting itself on the back. Yeah, and, and a and, label. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're taking it a step further than just being like, we use this. Like, okay, but how do I, how am I part of that as a customer? Yeah, and I know you've been covering retail and this industry, this space for a while. And it, you know, the the headlines lately, you know, it, with the valuations and it, it's it's um it's almost easy to follow but hard to watch. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, and I'm the reporter writing on it. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? I mean, what are you hearing from the the people that you talk to? You know, from a source level, and and what are some of the I guess the trends and the outlooks for this year. Um, we talked about it a little bit last year, but um, how's 2020 looking and feeling? So about two years ago, I started to report on what um, investors and analysts in the space were calling a correction on the market. Um, there are many brands that have been overvalued and have taken on also too much uh, venture capital money. And um, 
they're all great brands, but the economics aren't there for them to become a billion-dollar brand. Like, not every brand is a billion-dollar brand, and that's, I guess, just capitalism and consumer demand. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing investors kind of be more careful with what they're investing in, how much they give it out. Um, from what I've been hearing, a lot of VCs are looking for more of a proof point. So they will only start to give you uh, like a funding round if you've already proven that you know you've been profitable for X Y Z amount, mm -hmm. and you are not just going to use their money and put it into uh, like a Facebook advertising budget because that's just not okay anymore. <laughs> um, so that that's definitely something I've been hearing about, and. For all the brands that have raised a lot of money, um, I think we're seeing how that's playing out with the Casper IPO, where you know they had a correction in their valuation and you know the stock ebbs and flows. And uh, I think any other brand that's looking to IPO will probably face a similar trajectory, which is you know a hard pill to swallow for founders and people who work at that company. Yeah, and Paul, I know you're newer to Adweek, but you're covering. <laughs> You know, a lot of the the bigger brands, the bigger brands are also watching this. You know, these conversations happening and and the news, the yeah. fallout, the rise. Um, what are you kind of seeing um, in, in in your space? I know you just come off came off of like big Super Bowl coverage. There's, you know, lots of stuff that you know the umbrella companies are doing. Um, what are you seeing? Right. Well. Similar things to what Anne Marie said, I think. I think that in some ways, the a lot of DDC brands are kind of like the laboratory for these bigger, older legacy brands. They're seeing what works, what doesn't. They are also acquiring the ones that that they like. Um, so that is also uh, a strategy. But either either acquiring or trying to copy or emulate, I think. And again, adopting a lot of the same uh, focus on authenticity, sustainability, health and wellness. A lot of these trends we hear. Um, I think it's a bit harder for the, these bigger companies that have been around so long. These have bigger, you know, more employees, bigger bureaucracy, um, just the reputations that they've built over these decades. So uh, they're trying to adapt, but I think at the same time, they're some of them are still being successful doing what they do. And as Anne-Marie mentioned, sometimes these D2C brands run into these new hurdles and or potentially get overhyped or overvalued. And um, so it's just, it's just, I think they like to watch from... I guess both on a high and maybe a bit below and behind <laughs> the race too. So, um, yeah, they're trying to just uh, do what they can to to be involved, but also keep a little bit of distance. I think too from the, the, the as the D two C brands are more the pioneers, like for both for better and worse. All right, close eye and then. Climb the ladder when <laughs> the yeah. scale's happening. Right. Uh, and Paul, you'll be with us at Challenger Brands as well. What or I'll actually be gone. I'm uh, at, at uh, Expo West in California next week, so I will unfortunately miss my first Challenger Brands. So the the retail news and the CPG news never stops. <laughs> right. Lots of expos and conventions happening. Um, you both will stick around with us to talk about retail awards. Yeah. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned as Tim Grulick, Managing Director at Deloitte Digital, examines the fine line between personalized and creepy. And we are back with Emery and Paul to discuss the retail awards, the honorees who will be mentioned and highlighted in our retail issue out now. There are a lot of winners, Emery. Yes, yeah, it's our first year doing it, so 
we'll see how it pans out next year. Um, but retail has been a big focus for Ad Week this year. So yes. it's time to recognize the brands as well. Yes, we even <laughs> have a retail vertical on our website for anyone who works in mm-hmm. retail or is interested in retail and the learnings from that side of the business. Um, I would say how many categories do we have here like mm, somewhere along like 30 something I think right? 30 sounds yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. so Anne Marie can you tell us a little bit um, about these categories and and the winners I see some you know big box mentions but also some at least not as familiar names to me yeah so we separated it into two different like huge categories um, you know, the brands themselves that are doing great things, whether it's in QSR or beauty or like, you know, doing incredible pop-up experiences. And then, of course, we also honor the actual vendors, the B2B services that power these brands, you know, that are always behind the scenes. And uh, we don't really talk about as much because it's a little more inside baseball for people. But, you know, they're just as important, if not as important, Um that, you know, has these big brands because they're helping them do logistics or giving them analytics that they need to, you know, roll out a new product line or take one away, whatever it is, um, or even fulfill orders across international borders, which is not an easy thing if anyone's ever tried to mail something, <laughs> like even just a letter <laughs> to like London. It's just not a, not a casual thing. Um, and so some of the categories are, you know, kind of what you expect, like, you know, the best beauty retailer, which we're awarding to Ulta Beauty, or, um, you know, the best wellness retailer, which is Goop, which is also on the cover of our Brand Week uh, issue this this year. And then we also try to mix it up with, you know, including brands that maybe people don't know about as well, like uh, the best men's fashion retailer, which is Mac Weldon, um, which is a DTC brand that's in Hudson Yards, and... Um, they're a little under the radar, but I, I don't know. I'm not a man, so but apparently <laughs> a lot of men love love the underwear and the clothes that they're providing. Ah, underwear brand, okay. Yeah, apparently they're really comfortable or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and then of course, like we had to highlight some of the very clear winners of the past year, like best QSRs, Popeyes. Because, I mean, if you haven't had the sandwich yet. Or heard about the chicken sandwich. Right, right. Either you're a vegetarian or a vegan, which is understandable, but you've probably <laughs> heard of it still, right? Like, you know, it was such a phenomenon. Or even, um, obviously, best wine and spirits brand, White Claw, because it was the summer of seltzer last year. Um, but then, yeah, on the tech side, I mean, we're honoring brands like Square for their point of sale system. Poshmark for existing as a third-party marketplace where people can shop from each other, um, and also you know fulfillment technology of of companies that can actually you know take your inventory and send it out to the customer in a timely manner, which Ship Bob won here. And yeah, I don't know, Paul. Do you have any favorites that you wrote? Yeah. Well, like you're saying, I guess we it's a combo kind of of new and old and trying to look at a bit of everything. Um, I was interested in, uh, we named Best Buy our best consumer electronics retailer. They've been around for a while. There is, uh, as a big box retailer, there's a lot of doom and gloom surrounding them, I think, in the headlines. But uh, it hasn't been the case for them. They've kind of been on the rise, I think, for a number of years now. And mm. um, I think just last year, their stock hit the highest it's ever been. Um, they've been leaning into a lot of the their uh, Geek Squad Total Tech program uh, as more and more. And it makes sense, right? There's more and more people... Out there, there's more and more new technology 
it's kind of like providing a service of actually like just helping people understand the technology. And I think they've found a lot of success in that. And again, leveraging just the fact that they've been around for a while, people know them, they have a lot of locations across the country. So it's trying to find something that a younger DTC brand could not do, mm. um, which I think is always a kind of interesting thing. And they got um, these sorts of brands, again, I know don't always make the headlines as much because they're not not a new new thing, but... Just yeah, unless new. it's like bad news. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we tried to do that. Um, again, I think we, we named Target our best overall brick and mortar retailer for uh, similar reasons. Stock market's up. So, sorry, stock price is up. Uh, they've been remodeling stores. Uh, I think they launched a new loyalty program just recently. They've also been uh, working a lot with DDC brands too in a, in a neat way, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when this podcast has come out, Winky Lux, a DTC beauty brand, will be in stores and online. And I think it's it's another reason why we chose Target as our best overall brick and mortar retailer because they're willing to bring these, you know, quote unquote niche brands that people are loving and discovering online, but to their stores. And that's a big risk, but it's paying off as as you mentioned, their stock has been up. Yeah. And yeah. they they've also I think they've been launching more and more of their own private label things and again along those lines of more organic, natural. I think uh, Good and Gather was uh, a new food and beverage brand that they launched uh, along those lines of natural ingredients. Yeah, and Heyday, right? Their their tech headphones, they're doing well yeah, within the Target so space. Well, yeah. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then again, on the flip side, uh, we named Harry's the best men's grooming retailer. Um, they've had some big hurdles recently with FTC blocking <laughs> their acquisition, but we in a in a way it's like. That is, uh, I think, a positive sign for them that they've just got too big. They're doing too well that the FTC thinks that if they join forces with uh, Edgewell Personal Care, that's going to be not good for consumers in the market. But that's, I mean, that's a sign of strength, I think, on their part, not not weakness. They're a, a big player to watch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who else? We had an interesting category with... Um, the best cannabis retailer and also, you know, when we were talking about retail tech, um, Square as a, a, you know, point of sale. Yeah, they, again, are also, again, as people change the expectations and uh, just want more convenient ways to pay for things, Square has really been increasing their presence. I think I had one statistic here about um, what they've, in the last quarter, they processed $28.2 billion in payments across their whole system, which is a 25% increase from uh, last year at the same time. So That's just a lot. More, more and more money going through their system, showing that more and more people are using it, that they're available in more places. Just people trust it, I guess. It's just all those sorts of things. Yeah, and not just in you know urban markets, but also around you know the country and I think rural areas and you know, these, especially with the big box retailers, the fact that they're finding success, you know, across the country um, mm-hmm. really shows the the caliber of um, who's made the list and who hasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all seen like, I feel like at craft fairs or like small like, business events, right? We see people pop up with a square like reader to mm-hmm. quickly like sell you something. And I think the fact that you even know, like I think most people know what it is when it pops out. At this point, and are like, oh yeah, let's get yeah. let's get this going. Yeah, yeah, and even like cafes use it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, they just plug it into their iPad, and it's become a very normalized thing. It, you know when it works, and people like start to use it as a verb, like, oh, I'll just, <laughs> let's just square it, or 
Yeah. <laughs> Any brand that can uh, claim claim the verb is, is a hell of ahead of everyone else. I think. I'm curious from a personal standpoint. You know what what are some of the award like? Which award winner are you like personally familiar with? Oh wow! Like. Like where we so, shop, as, yeah. Or? People like mm. where you shop. I mean, I know Anne Marie that you use like from a professional standpoint, <laughs> Shopify for like statistics. But like, you know, where where are you going or shopping online from? I think uh, one that stands out to me, or that I will, I think your your adjective was like excites me or something like that, um, is Best Buy because I. They, they do have a really good uh, buy online pickup and store process, um, which, I mean, obviously I report on it. And so I just some extra, like, cautious or wondering how they're going to handle it. And they're actually pretty good. And, and they uh, fulfilled a Christmas order I placed really fast. And I was worried that, I don't know, it's so close to Christmas. Like, well, we have some issues here, but it was, it was totally fine. Um, yeah. So it's like pr- a proof point, a personal proof point. My one statistic for myself that yeah. <laughs> that they deserve. This. It's it's hard to turn <laughs> your brain off when you're you know so used to like you know I whenever I watch a show I can't help but like be like oh that was a good transition or that was a good line <laughs> or like oh look at those props there like and I'm like no 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 just enjoy the show right it's like, yeah just buy your TV I see that product placement <laughs> but I like it exactly. like yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's a well. There's a Trader Joe's best overall grocer. There's a Trader Joe's near uh, where I live. Gotta love it. I don't go there all the time, mainly because it's just too busy all the time. But uh, when we do go, uh, the service is always pretty friendly, and the line actually moves much faster than it and it might feel like it does. So, um, and again, some some things we found is that they uh, employees seem to be happy there, and Glassdoor rankings that they grew compared to last year as far as employee satisfaction, I think, or best places to work. Um, so, yeah, I go there, and, and they do seem, everyone does seem pretty happy. And uh, I agree. I think it's the Hawaiian shirts. Yeah, <laughs> could be. <laughs> and the frozen food section. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you both, Paul and Anne-Marie, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank Always you. happy to be on. Yeah. And um, make sure to check out the Retail Awards issue and the Brand Week issue, uh, whether you get a subscription or you can pick them up at our Challenger Brands March 4th and 5th in New York. We'll have continuing coverage of Challenger Brands from DJ Khaled um, to I, what I think the fascinating Goop, um, everyone else um, on adweek.com. We're going to take a break and take another deep dive into retail with a special guest. Stay tuned. I also spoke with Rich Siegel, the founder of Loose Threads, an analytics and advisement company for consumer brands. Here's a little bit of our conversation. And with us now is Richie Siegel, CEO and founder of Loose Threads. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. You also are a fellow podcast host, yes. and you take deep dives into what's happening in the world of retail. What is it like out there lately? I think the last few months have been really interesting because you have the Casper, not IPO, IPO. You have uh, the Harry's deal, uh, the Harry's Edgewell acquisition getting broken up. There are a lot of things that I think we've been writing about and talking about for, I would say, three years at this point that were 
I would say a little more theory at that point or a little more abstract of like, we think it's going this way. We think this is going to happen. And then we saw over the course of like six to eight weeks, a lot of, I guess, proof of those things kind of happen really quickly uh, with kind of those deals that I mentioned. So it's been interesting just to have more case studies of there's a reason retail exists. There's a reason wholesale exists. There's a reason acquisition costs are rising, you know, at a crazy speed online. And they're just kind of more comps for that now of, oh, you know, we're seeing, I guess, what started with Uber continue to WeWork and then, you know, very home to this space was the Casper and the Harry situation change the way that people think about the space, I think, for the better. Uh, and that means, you know, focusing more on, I would say, building sustainable businesses, building profitable, building sustainable business, building profitable businesses versus just let's raise money, let's spend it, let's hope to get, you know, what we spend in revenue a lot. We raised 300 million and earned 300 million, which is not that impressive to do. And so I think we're seeing a lot of those things change, which is really great. And I think at the end of the day, we've always been interested in, you know, what we call enduring consumer brands, which to be enduring, you have to be profitable. And so I think we're swinging back to that after, you know, I would say seven to 10 years of not. Uh, And again, for for the space, for the founders, for the employees, for the investors, I think that is a better thing. There's a little bit of short-term pain to get there, but... um, it's going back in the direction that I guess before venture capital entered this whole space, it was, which is you build a business, you make it profitable, you grow it, maybe you take it public and kind of repeat. Maybe you get acquired, who knows. <laughs> but now, you know, I think the beauty of startups, um, whether it's in retail or, you know, some other industry, is that they do disrupt the space in terms of having um, the the legacy brands rethink things. So, you know, some of the awards winners are the big box stores. Some of them, um, you know, are changing the way that, that they do business and, and look at customer acquisition. Um, how are you seeing that space? you know, that conversation happening. Yeah. So that whole kind of manifesto of disruptor and so forth, I think largely has been overplayed in the sense of we don't actually know how to quantify or we haven't really quantified how actually, quote unquote, disruptive these brands have been. We wrote something about a month ago about this idea of like the fallacy of owning a product category. And I'm putting that in quotes. And of course, we're on a podcast. <laughs> um and if you look, like Harry's, for example, I think had less than 5% of the overall razor market, but they were in, you know, D2C land, like the winner of that space. You can play it over with a lot of different examples. And the actual impact of these younger brands from a pure revenue market share perspective is minimal. That said, as, as you alluded to, it did force a lot of bigger brands to rethink how they approach things. But what I would almost counter to that is, and I'll, I guess, use a specific example. So Walker & Company was founded by Tristan Walker – I believe in the early kind of 2010s, to uh, be basically a brand incubator for products and brands that serve people of color. And Bevel was their first brand. It was a men's, you know, uh, grooming brand that made razors, made some other kind of grooming products. And he raised about $30 million uh, to grow that brand. He ended up selling it to P&G for about that same amount, given he couldn't reach the scale he needed, uh, really from an advertising perspective, to really build and distribute that brand. P&G bought the brand, and I think about seven to ten months later, they recently relaunched it with a product assortment that is probably three to five times out of what it was. And when he got acquired, it really, I think, was one of these inflection points of, you know, a lot of these younger, modern, challenger brands use these big CPG companies as the punching bag of, you know, we're going to eat P&G alive, we're going to eat Unilever alive. And what you started to see is you have all these brands that, basically live or die off of how cheap they can acquire new customers. And in the grand scheme of things, 
Facebook, Google being you know a market-based system of the more people bidding, the higher the price goes and vice versa, Unilever, P&G, these big companies are the only ones that can afford to outbid all these younger brands right now. And so you saw this kind of interesting, I guess, reversion to these CPG conglomerates who, yes, are slow and bloated and have a lot of these older brands. They actually are some of the only parties with the scale to actually grow these things beyond 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars in revenue. And so I think Walker and Company as an example was a great, you know, scenario where the founder took some humility and said, look, I need someone else to help me grow and scale this thing. Maybe that is a large legacy player. Maybe I can give them something they don't have and vice mm-hmm. versa. And there's that kind of true value exchange. So the 2010s were this really weird example of like, let's ignore the last 100 plus years of history and think everything's different now because of the internet. And some things are different for sure. But also most of it is still the same, yeah. a la retail, wholesale, et cetera. <laughs> and I think now literally at the beginning of 2020, somewhat coincidentally, we're back at this place of like, oh, let's just build a brand. They'll sell online. They'll sell in stores. They'll sell in wholesale. Let's grow profitably. Let's acquire customers. Let's build a repeat business. In a sense, these are really boring answers because these have never changed. But I think we went on this 10-year detour of the world has changed because of the internet and therefore the fundamental business metrics and economics and KPIs have also changed. And that was kind of the fallacy that I think we've seen for a number of years is that a business is still a business and a good business is still a good business. The internet helps in some ways and hurts in others. Mm -hmm. And again, you go back to this idea of let's just build a profitable brand and whether you're in 2010 or 1990 or whatever it is, you will succeed in some sense. Yeah, and good customer experience and good customer service is it is it is what it is, right? And so in terms of things kind of going back, I brick and mortar in many ways is not going away. Some of it is changing. I know you recently uh, wrote about, you know, certain pop-ups happening. Um, but how do you see e-commerce um, evolving, you know, even though the fundamentals of, of business have to, to put, come into play? Yeah. So I think, as you said, there's a lot of, you know, consolidation happening in retail. There are companies going bankrupt, you know, every month at this point, closing hundreds of stores and probably millions of square feet getting, you know, reallocated or, I guess, eliminated in some sense when you look at what Macy's is is doing, closing 125 stores, et cetera. Um, There's a lot of retail in the U.S. You know, people have talked forever about we're over-retailed, you know, per capita compared to a lot of other countries. That's definitely true. Um, There's also just a lot of bad retail in the U.S. especially. And I think a lot of what's happening is you have brands that are coming in and saying, you know, we can make a better experience, whether that is an Amazon Go, whether that is a Glossier, you know, pop-up or or a retail store, whether that is another, you know, example. So I I think it depends – I guess it matters less to me on like the age of the brand than just are you going to make a good experience as you said. Um, the thing that's interesting is you know all these brands are starting to find, especially the younger ones. And again, this this shouldn't be that revolutionary if you've been in retail for a long time as a company or a brand. The customer that spends in multiple channels is going to be more valuable and cheaper to acquire than the one that spends in one. So for a lot of these younger brands, that means the customer buying in retail and wholesale or retail and e-com or retail e-com and wholesale will always be a better customer than the one buying in any one of those channels. And that just makes so much sense for a number of reasons. You buy more, you buy differently, you buy where you can buy. Um, And so through that lens, there's a very bright future for both retail and I would always add wholesale into that too because strategically doing that, again, gives you access to this audience you probably can't afford to build on Facebook at this point. So I think it's fine. You'll still see what I guess people call the carnage for I think a very long time. 
But again, it's a boring answer, but it goes back to just build a good business agnostic of channel and you'll generally be in a good place. And every brand will have a different mix of what that agnostic of channel means. But there are great retail experiences out there. They're really bad ones. And I think hopefully we'll end up with like better ones than we ever have before. And that that's some from kind of younger brands. And that's some of like you use Amazon Go the first time and it's like kind of magical. Yeah, let's let's t- end on a high note and let's talk about that that bright future. What are you looking forward to, and who are the 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 players that you're looking at in 2020? Names. Names are good. I'm always terrible at this name dropping. Um, <laughs> or overall things that you're you're really seeing. We talked about some of them. Let me think. So I think you know we we talked about exits kind of at the beginning of this, and you know all the press goes to the Dollar Shaves of the world, the Harrys and so forth. They're brands like Lively to me, which are you know incredible examples of you know a brand that I think was doing you know roughly ten million dollars in revenue, sold for eighty eight million. Everyone did very well in that deal, from what you know is it, it publicly announced. And you know they have a future now with uh, Wacol to build that brand for the foreseeable future. So I think again that's like on the smaller end of things, but as it exits go, is probably one of the best outcomes the space has ever seen. Um, in terms of brands who are doing something interesting, I mean we've been following for a few years now just everything happening in the celebrity space, and whether it's with uh, Kylie Cosmetics or Kylie Skin or Skims, which is Kim Kardashian shapewear brand, and that continues to be, I think, the most interesting proxy for us of basically the limits of what it means to be direct-to-consumer. We've written a number of uh, pieces about, you know, if Kylie Jenner, you know, hits a growth ceiling at, you know, about $250 million in annual revenue and has to go into Ulta, what does that mean for someone who has to go pay for their audience and is not a Kardashian? And those have always been really interesting proxies that, interestingly, when we write about them, some people really hate it. But I think you don't have to judge the family to just understand the business case and the interesting reason, you know, behind, you know, what they've been able to do. Um I'm trying to think of other examples. I mean, Glossier, again, will be an interesting example. This will be a, a pretty important year for them as they figure out, you know, what is next uh, in a number of different ways. Obviously, you see them to continue to do uh, pop-ups, experimenting with a lot of new brands um, and kind of products and so forth. The other thing I would just say is, you know, we also, I guess, have a really strong belief that the retailers and, you know, the multi-brand retailers that have private labels are in a very, very enviable position compared to the brands that have to build the audience from scratch. So there was something this week that Allswell, which is Walmart's you know startup mattress brand, will do over $100 million in sales this year. And I think that's within a year or two of launching versus Casper has been around for a number of years and is, I think, just around $300 million. So again, boring answer, but like the private labels that are coming out of Target, Walmart, even Amazon in some sense are – the like least flashy version of just people want to buy stuff that's kind of priced well and is, you know, generally workable. And I think to your point before, you even can see how some of these direct-to-consumer brands have rubbed off on these bigger companies of, oh, this stuff just looks better. They have to have better, you know, support and, and have a better shopping experience and et cetera. Um, but I guess our one, one of the foundational theories of, I think, all of our work is like the most boring businesses are always the best and the flashiest ones are always the worst. And I think you know, starting in the fashion world, I always come back to that kind of maxim. And I think, again, it's true. I guess what contradicts that is like mattresses are like a pretty boring business that I guess were, were attempted to be made sexy in some sense and just weren't. Um, but you go back to private labels, you go back to other things like that where just sell good stuff at an affordable price that's pretty sustainable and hope people come back. And like that, again, is a good business. Everything else in between is kind of nonsense. Yeah, I, I like the saying um... – or the acronym KISS, keep it simple, stupid. 
<laughs> I would add like keep it simple and profitable. So I'd add like it. I guess it's kiss ass, but <laughs> I would add or no, that doesn't make sense. And kiss app that doesn't make any sense. But I, I the profitable piece is I think really important. And again, yes, that is simple. Um, but you know, we entered this canon of somehow people thought this money was unlimited, and uh, it wasn't. And that's great because it never was. Yeah. Well, it was great to have you with us. Thanks Richard so much Siegel for having me. Spreads. Thank you. And that's all for this week's episode of Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. Thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations to all of the winners. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was edited by Lane McGibney and produced by yours truly with assistance from Josh Rios. Please take a moment to leave a review wherever you find your podcast, and feel free to email your questions and concerns and thoughts to podcasts at adweek.com. I'm Ko Im. See you soon. Welcome to Elevating the Human Experience from Deloitte Digital. How can brands proactively use your technology and data in the right way at the right time to build intuitive and empathetic customer experiences that engender trust? Tim Grulick, Managing Director at Deloitte Digital, sheds light on how respecting consumer privacy is the foundation of personalized experiences. I have to say, I don't like it when I go searching for a vacation location on one site and then open another site to check the news and I see ads for that vacation site or related products. I don't know about you, but those ads never drive clicks for me, and they feel creepy. This feeling was also the overwhelming response from our participants in our survey when we asked them about personalization versus privacy. Given today's focus on personal data and the missteps of some of our trusted digital institutions, it was not a surprise to see over a third of the respondents make mention of the fact that they do not want companies to use their browsing data or product history to recommend products or services for them. Almost a third of the respondents go even further and don't want companies to know or use their unique interactions and purchasing preferences. While this aligns with some of today's concerns about privacy, what was surprising in the research was actually how open customers were to sharing data with companies they trusted and had what they perceived as emotional connections or relationships. As a matter of fact, customers clearly indicated that they expect if they offer a brand insights or feedback, it is the brand's responsibility to respond and take action accordingly. For example, 66% of the participants expected that a brand would integrate feedback provided into concepting or evolving products based on the data provided. However, they were not comfortable with a brand collecting data that they did not directly provide. So capturing data like browsing history felt invasive and betrayed their trust and felt dishonest. The moral of the story is a good one for brands that can truly create emotional connections with their customers. As data privacy becomes more and more a hot topic and even more a differentiator in the battle to deliver personalized experiences, organizations that view the use of data in an ethical and human way, as a friend would with another friend's personal information, will begin to exploit their data advantage. As these organizations build emotionally intelligent enterprises that focus on ethical uses of data to foster human connections, our research proves that their customers will be more willing to provide them with personal information to create more personal experiences, improve products, and create differentiated services. This focus on creating trust and connection with their customers will unlock a data advantage that for other organizations will continue to shrink as customers become more protective of their personal information. Want to learn more about elevating the human experience through emotion-driven engagement? Visit DeloitteDigital.com slash US slash Emotion Research for more insight. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth. 
your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.